This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. Until a few years ago, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, was known as the most dangerous city in the world, and with good reason. In 2010, you were more likely to be murdered in Juarez than in Tijuana, or Matamoros, or the slums of Brazil, or Syria, or Mogadishu, Somalia. More than 3,700 people died in one year during the war between the Juarez and the Sinaloa cartels for control of the city. But before this explosion of violence, Juarez was known to the outside world as the city that killed women. Over the last 25 years, hundreds of women and young girls have been disappeared or murdered in Juarez. In many cases, the women have been raped. Some of their bodies were viciously mutilated in a common pattern, leading some investigators to suggest that a serial killer was behind these crimes. Other women were abducted in broad daylight and sold into sex trafficking by Mexico's organized crime groups. In February 2020, we went to Juarez to talk with experts who have examined this story, the investigators who tried to solve the mystery of these crimes and the families of the victims whose lives have been reshaped by tragedy. Interview with Veronica. We were chatting with Veronica Corchado, the head of Juarez Municipal Women's Institute. A few minutes after wrapping up our interview, a group of gunmen opened fire outside the building. Everyone froze, unsure for a moment if we were hearing what we thought we were hearing, until the sound of glass shattered by dozens of bullets removed all doubt from our minds. We took off running from the entrance. Veronica guided us to an office in the middle of the building. We cowered on the floor, waiting for the shooting to stop, praying that the gunman wouldn't come bursting through the doors. 
The look on everyone's face showed that they feared for the worst. But what the worst was, was different in every mind. For a fearful young woman who came seeking help from the Women's Institute, she worried that a Sicario boyfriend had followed her to the shelter, seeking revenge. For Veronica and her staff, they worried the organized crime groups might be targeting the shelter. We worried that someone had followed us to the interview, that the gunfire was a warning about our podcast. After a few minutes, the shooting stopped. Three gunmen had fled from the scene. Two municipal police officers who had returned fire and were wounded at the scene were taken to a nearby hospital. Both survived. Police cordoned off a crime scene for several blocks around the building. We waited more than an hour. Our fixer, Renix, went for a look around to make sure the coast was clear. When he felt sure it was safe to leave, we made our way from the building, stepping over the shattered glass and carefully made our way to the production van and back to our hotel. The next day, we read in El Diario de Juarez that the three gunmen had already been arrested by police. They were 18, 17, and 16 years old. My name is Lydia Cacho. I am an investigative reporter who specializes in writing about human rights and organized crime. I am also a feminist activist. I have written 16 books and was born in Mexico City. I am also the host of this podcast. But I wasn't there in Juarez when this incident occurred. In fact, I wasn't even in Mexico. In 2004, I wrote a book called Demons of Eden, which uncovered an international criminal network involved in child trafficking, money laundering, and the production of child pornography in Mexico. Since then, some of the criminals I named in that book have been incarcerated and, in the thirst for revenge, their accomplices, politicians and businessmen I exposed in this organized criminal network had me kidnapped, tortured, and illegally incarcerated I went to trial against them and eventually won. In July 2019, 14 years after I was tortured, two hitmen entered my home, killed my dogs, and tried to kill me. We later found they were sicarios hired by the criminals I uncovered in my books. I had to flee the country with only my passport and a small bag of clothing. It was the 15th time they have tried to end my life. During the last year, I have been traveling and hiding from these criminals while Interpol searches for them. They are on the run, but until they are sentenced and behind bars, so am I. Because of these threats against my life, I was not able to travel to Ciudad Juarez to do the interviews for this podcast. If I had, more than likely, 
I would have ended up as another statistic. One more murdered journalist who dared to go deep into the stories that matter in Mexico. Or dead, like the women and girls you will hear about. I participated in the creation and writing of this podcast, together with our Mexico-based production team, who recorded and edited these interviews. I am honored to be the voice of those who can no longer speak in Juarez. I will narrate this story for you wholeheartedly because I know the systematic killings of women and girls will never end until we tell the complete truth about how and why it happened and who are the ones responsible for it. This is episode one of The Red Note. Listen carefully. This is a true story. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In January 1993, state police discovered the body of the first reported victim of the Juarez serial murders in the desert outside the city. More than likely, there were earlier female victims whose remains were never located or whose deaths were never tied to the serial murders. Molly Molloy, was a research librarian at New Mexico State University who studied the female homicides in Juarez. I honestly don't think that the phenomenon of young women being killed in Juarez was new, but noticing it was new. There started to be articles in the newspaper about young women being found dead. Um, Families started reporting young women being missing. And my feeling about it is that similar phenomena were going on before, but they weren't noticed and maybe not even being counted in the, st the official statistics. Between May and October 1993, the bodies of 10 more young women are found in the desert. All had been the victims of violence, including sexual assault. As more and more women's bodies were discovered, 
a common profile began to emerge. Most were between the ages of 13 and 22. Two-thirds were students, sex industry workers, or workers in the Juarez informal economy. Many worked in the hundreds of factories known as maquiladoras that had been built in Juarez over the last three decades. Diana Washington Valdez was a reporter for the El Paso Times and wrote a book called The Killing Fields about the Juarez serial murders. She says it wasn't just the number of victims that made these murders unique, but the manner in which the victims were killed. We recognized that there was an unusual string of murders of crimes. Unusual for Mexico, unusual for Juarez, unusual for the border. Their bodies had demonstrated uh, a savage brutality, the way in which they were murdered. Those factors, I think, is what attracted investigators to look more into these murders. Uh, again, this had never been seen before, uh, and not to this extent and not with a degree of savagery and brutality that these murders were carried out. Young women were being singled out. Most of the targets, well, I would have to say 99% of them were young women from poor families. Many of them were students. Uh, they were going about their normal lives when they were kidnapped or lured into a dangerous situation and found it later. The other thing that stood out about these crimes is the impunity. Uh, the authorities appear to be either unwilling or unable to solve and prevent these crimes. Activist and Vagina Monologues author Eve Ensler remembers the first time she visited Ciudad Juarez during the serial murders. It felt like a war zone. It felt like a, a war zone against women. It felt like a place where women were completely unsafe, where, where the violence of poverty was merged with the violence of sexual brutality and murder. It felt like, I don't know, I just remember this feeling of, of dust and bone that, and maybe it was because I spent so much time going to try to find the daughters to try to match you know, DNA with bodies. It was a horrifying experience. And it was amazing to me that it was so close to El Paso that you literally could drive right across the border and it could be so, it could be so unknown to people who literally were 10 minutes away, right? It was, it was shocking. December 1993, at least 25 women have been found murdered in Juarez. Nearly a year after the first female homicide victim was reported, authorities in the city still refused to recognize that a pattern of gender violence was taking place or to devote resources to solving these murders. In the absence of a meaningful criminal investigation, the work of investigating these murders fell to the mothers of the victims. Journalist Blanca Carmona. 
They are people who don't know the law, who are poor and have had to learn. They have been struggling moms seeking justice, who have learned because they've been forced to learn, not because they wanted to, but because the authorities do not give them answers. They've had to learn that themselves. They've had to find out what their rights are, learn to demand them. They had no legal advice, no support. They didn't even know on which door to knock. That is, who to go to. They didn't know their rights as relatives of victims. December 1994. The murdered remains of about 10 more women have been found over the last year. A total of at least three dozen victims have been discovered so far. Veronica Corchado, who we interviewed at In Mujeres, the Municipal Women's Institute in Juarez, says that for the families of these victims, the effect of losing their daughters was catastrophic. A lot of things start happening to families and health when a daughter disappears. What I've usually seen is that fathers are the ones who give up first. They sort of can't handle that repressed pain. Women still kind of, uh, uh, they kind of cope with it. Shout it out, cry it out. I can't imagine the kind of pain they feel. And still, they have to get up every day to go on with their life. I won't say their life as usual because their usual life is not there anymore. But to get up, to cook, to have to look their other children in the eye or the rest of their family, There's a family guilt in every case of this kind of violence or femicide, disappearance. Everybody loses. The family loses. Women lose. The neighborhood loses. And the city loses. Because the ties are broken or damaged. Eve Ensler visited Juarez in the early 2000s to write about the serial murders. I was doing an interview for Marie Claire magazine and just so many girls that I, and mothers that I was interviewing, their names were Brenda. And it was like this world of missing Brendas. And I remember a mother had never been able to go see her daughter because her daughter was buried way, way out in the desert and there was no bus that would take her there. So I drove her to the desert. And I remember us wandering around the cemetery of hundreds and hundreds of bodies looking for her daughter's name. And we finally found it on this worn wooden cross in the ground. It just said Brendita on the sign. And I just stood there while her mother just threw her body on the ground on top of her daughter and just pressed her body on her daughter. It was almost like moving her body as if she was trying to assemble the parts of her daughter's body. I'm thinking to myself, no one knows this is even happening. No one knows that the hundreds of women are being disappeared and murdered and the permanent devastation and grief and sorrow that mothers will hold in their bodies and beings for the rest of their life. And I think when you go and you see it firsthand, then you are forever responsible for telling that story and doing what you can to get people to care about it. 
Mi nombre es Norma Andrade. My name is Norma Andrade. I'm originally from Ciudad Juárez, Chihuahua, and I'm the mother of Lilia Alejandra García Andrade, who went missing on February the 14th in the year 2001, and was later found murdered. Lilia Alejandra's philosophy of life was, if you smile to someone, that someone will smile back to you. She always had a smile on her face. When she was little, she had sort of a high language registry for her age, so she'd always be correcting everyone. If we said, Oh, that's so chido. Meaning cool. Chido is a word that is used a lot in the slang of Ciudad Juarez. She would turn around immediately and say, You should not say chill. Just say nice. If someone was smoking, for instance, when we were on the bus, she'd get up and put out their cigarette. She'd tell them that the right to smoke ended where hers to breathe began. She got me into all sorts of trouble. She was six years old when she did that. Alejandra worked in a maquila called Promex Plastics, which is on Ejército Nacional and the Pan American Highway. She worked shifts from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., but on the weekends she wasn't working. She was studying high school. She was in high school when she got pregnant with her daughter, Jade. Alex had children when she was very young, so she looked like a child playing dolls with them. Despite being a child herself, she took responsibility for her children. She immediately started working and said, I'm going to take care of my girl, well, my baby, because she was pregnant. And unfortunately, she had very little time to enjoy them. Jade was one year and eight months old, and her brother was five months old when she left us. We found Ali on February 21st. That is seven days after, after she went missing. Less than 24 hours after she was killed. She was held in captivity for six days. Then they went and threw her right where she had to walk to get the bus. It used to be a vacant lot. No railings, no fence or anything. Full of garbage, sand, stones. Now there are shopping malls. During the seven days that her daughter was missing, Norma tried to get the authorities to help her locate Lily Alejandra with no luck. We're talking about her going missing on Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday had passed already. Three full days that they had wasted. On Thursday, in the afternoon, I went to the prosecutor's office and, well, I was overreacting. I go again on the next day and they tell me, oh, ma'am, it's just that you were smothering her. It's freedom that she wanted. That's when they started the investigation. The investigating agent told me, oh, lady, what do you want us to do? It's just the two of us. 
for all the 4,500 missing women at that time. We're just two agents. How do you think we're going to find so many girls? You are the ones who don't look for them. You kick them out of their homes. Those were the agent's words. And I've got them ingrained in my mind. The authorities don't really know anything. They don't know what happened to her. I mean, we know what happened because of what her body screamed to us, because of the evidence and the autopsy. Even though it was done poorly, Alejandra's body would tell you what happened to her. But what really happened, we don't know. By January 1995, more than 100 unsolved rape or homicide cases have occurred in Juarez since the beginning of 1993. So who was killing these women? Here's Eve Ensler again. I think one of the problems we always had in Juarez was identifying the perpetrator because the perpetrator is the corporations, the perpetrator is the government, the perpetrator is machismo, the perpetrator is poverty, the perpetrator is maquiladoras. It's, it's a combination of all those forces that have ground women down and have basically allowed them to be sacrificed at the altar of profit and violence. In 1993, two powerful forces arrived in Juarez that would have a seismic impact on the city's female homicides during the next 30 years. NAFTA and the Carrillo-Fuentes cartel. Until the 1980s, Colombia's drug cartels had shipped cocaine and other narcotics to the U.S. through the Caribbean and the southeastern United States. When the DEA tried to close these smuggling routes in the 1980s, the Colombian cartels made a deal with their counterparts in Mexico to move their product to the U.S. through border cities like Tijuana and Juarez. In April of 1993, the leader of the Juarez cartel was assassinated. The man who ordered a hit Amado Carrillo Fuentes assumed control over drug trafficking in Juarez. According to journalist Julian Cardona, Carrillo Fuentes brought new levels of corruption to Juarez and to Mexico. The practice of paying off the government or buying the authorities precedes Carrillo Fuentes. It's traditional in Mexico. Except that with Carrillo Fuentes, it happened at a national level. And we saw that with the federal agents, we see it with the municipal police. Corruption predates Carrillo Fuentes. It's not exclusive to his time. He just gave it a specific dimension. Police officers, officials, 
judges, and politicians who were under the pay of the Carrillo Fuentes cartel weren't taking their orders from the citizens of Juarez, and certainly not from the mothers and families who begged them to help solve their daughters' murders. As Juarez became a major drug trafficking center, Carrillo Fuentes and his Colombian associates brought many dangerous people to the city, according to Diana Washington Valdez. I had several people tell me, longtime Chihuahua residents, they were very fearful about the allegiances that would permit the Colombians to operate in Mexico in this manner because the Colombians already had a reputation of um, great violence, take no prisoners approach, using terror as a weapon to control their smuggling territories. They introduced that factor uh, into Mexico and the drug traffickers of Mexico in what is particular, began to adopt that approach. That none of these crimes could occur, including the femicides, without the okay of the top drug lords. There's no question in my mind. Juarez was an ideal spot to move narcotics to the U.S. because of its close proximity to the city of El Paso, Texas on the other side of the Rio Grande. Before the end of the Mexican-American War, Juarez and El Paso had actually been a single city, El Paso del Norte. Despite the river and the border and the wall that now divides them, journalist Lorena Figueroa says that for many border residents, designations like Mexican or American don't make much sense in an area where economic and cultural exchange is a part of everyday life. I consider myself, for example, if, when they say, are you where from? I'm from the borderland. I don't say from Juarez, I don't say from El Paso. Where do you live? I live in the border. Because I consider myself from the border, which you have the best of both cultures, both countries, the best from the best is the only border in the world that interacts like we do. It's so close. We're just divided by a fence, a dry river, and slow international bridges. You speak Spanish here, you speak English over there. It's, you take your dollars, you take your pesos here also in some businesses. It's okay if they see well, a Mexican plate, but or if you say a Texan plate over there. People that live in the border, we understand that. People that live outside, it's difficult sometimes to comprehend. Because of its close proximity to El Paso, hundreds of factories had been built in Juarez, known as maquiladoras, or twin factories because they had a sister factory on the other side of the border where parts were manufactured, assembled cheaply in Juarez, and shipped back to the U.S. for distribution. The first maquiladora in Juarez was built in the 1960s, but after the U.S., Canada, and Mexico 
ratified the North American Free Trade Agreement in the early 90s. On this vote, the yeas are 234, the nays are 200, and the bill is passed. The construction of new maquiladoras in Juarez, which had already begun to accelerate in the 70s and 80s, reached a fever pitch. Maquiladora workers earned about $5 to $8 per day. Until recently, women comprised about 80% of the maquiladora workforce. Putting male managers in charge of so many female workers created a highly sexualized environment in many maquilas. Female workers had to fend off requests for a date or sex from their managers and catcalls from supervisors who walked around ogling and harassing women on the factory floor. You had to be 16 to work at the maquiladoras, but many poor girls, some as young as 12 and 13, lied about their ages in order to get a job at the factories. Even they had to be afraid of the sexual predators who hired them. Before she became the head of In Mujeres in Juarez, Veronica Corchado worked in the city's maquiladoras during the 1980s. I only worked for two maquiladoras, one that I think no longer exists. It made surgical instruments. All the bosses were men there, and I don't remember much harassment at that time. At the other maquiladora, the big bosses there were also men, and there were a lot of harassment issues. There was even a pageant like um, choosing the prettiest girl to be the queen of all the maquiladoras. I'm glad that all that came to an end because that's horrible. The hundreds of thousands of migrants who came to Juarez looking for maquiladora jobs brought their own cultures which has fundamentally reshaped the character of the city. Investigative journalist Rocio Gallegos. The border has one feature, specifically Juarez, that I think is given by the fact that over 40% of its population are not born here. When there was a strong migration of people from Veracruz in early 2000, our cuisine changed just like that. Suddenly, meat barbecue became fish barbecue <laughs> made by the people from Veracruz. Tamales were made differently. It was no longer a corn leaf. It was a banana leaf. There is cultural diversity that engages this society and makes us completely different. It makes us the number one border, as singer Juan Gabriel used to say. But that same diversity makes us a little distant from each other. Jose Luis Castillo is a lifelong resident of Ciudad Juarez. His daughter, Esmeralda, was disappeared in 2009. People from all over the country live here on the border. And unfortunately, when someone steals from our neighbor, we say, I'm glad. Screw that guy from Veracruz. When they steal from someone else, I'm glad they screwed that guy from Zacatecas. And when they steal from me, I say, 
Why don't they help me? When my little girl had just disappeared, I was wondering, why doesn't everyone come out and help me? I realized that's why. Because if you pay attention here, we don't even greet each other anymore. We don't even know who is our neighbor next door. And when you go to Michoacán, Oaxaca, Veracruz, you come out of your house and it's, how are you? Hey, how's your daughter? We've lost all that here on the border. But to be from the border, it's an honor. I feel proud to be from Ciudad Juárez because people from Juárez are noble, hardworking folk. We are loving people. We are happy people. We are willing to give it all for our people, for our family. If someone wants a peso and we have one, we give it to them. What do you need one peso for? Is it to eat or to get high or why do you need it? No, there you have it. Not even asking what is it for, because that's how people from what is are. Even with all the problems that we face, like any other human being, we move on. Even if we have to cry, or even bite our tongues sometimes, we remain positive. It's impossible not to be impressed by the toughness of Juarenses. This is a city carved out from the middle of a barren desert. For about half of the year, the daytime high routinely tops 100 degrees. During the weeks our team was there, Temperatures rarely exceeded a wet, windy, and bone-chilling 50 degrees. It is a city that routinely sees snow in the winter, torrential rains and dusty windstorms in the spring, and months of unbearable heat in the summers. Homicide rates in the city rise and fall according to the temperature. During the freezing winter months, Murders are at the lowest rates of the year. In the summer, when the air is balmy, even in the small hours of the morning, the city's murder rate climbs. During the five-year war between the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels, when the Mexican army was stationed in the city, more than 5,000 people were murdered. Those who could afford to live fled to nearby U.S. cities like El Paso and Las Cruces in New Mexico. The citizens who stayed behind have gone on with their lives with a combination of determination, toughness, warmth, and hospitality that would be impossible for an outsider to emulate. The official name of the city is Heroica Ciudad Juárez, the heroic city of Juárez. Over the next 25 years, it's an epithet that its citizens would more than earn.
The Red Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinosa Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. We're joined now by journalist Alicia Fernandez in Ciudad Juarez, who conducted the interviews for this podcast. Alicia, you were present at the shooting incident we described in today's episode. Can you tell us what it was like? It wasn't my first experience like that, but it reminded me that sensation of vulnerability while reporting thug issues in Juarez. I felt calm after knowing that the attack wasn't for us. In some way, I have felt some responsibility for the safety of the team. You are originally from Juarez, isn't that right? Yeah, and I have documented for more than a decade, including the terrible year of 2010 when I was working as a photographer at El Diario de Juarez. At this moment, I'm not living there, but all the time I go back and forth to keep documenting and understanding life and death on the border. How does it make you feel when you hear Juarez called the most dangerous city in the world or the city that kills women? For me, it isn't fair to say that Juarez is only dead because people there is resilient, novel, and fighter. But the geographical situation of the city, being so close to the U.S., and the political decisions made by leaders on the border have created a situation for women of impunity and deep sadness that I think is important for us to hear and analyze, whether we are Mexicans or Americans. Thank you, Alicia.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.